why should we obey God at all? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me is Josh Hayes. So, Josh, it's a big question that we're discussing today, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost like that question, why do we get up and brush our teeth every morning? Why do we get out, make it a point to get out of bed? Why should we live and breathe and continue to care at all? Why should we obey God at all? That's a fundamental question. Thankfully, First John gives us some healthy perspective on how to answer that question. Absolutely. So we are looking at First John, as you mentioned. Uh, we're going to be camping out in six verses, verses uh, one to six of chapter two. Um, and so before we read those, Josh, how about let's let's give our listeners a little bit of context. Yeah, some of our listeners might be uh, familiar, might take it for granted uh, with some of the background in terms of who wrote First John. It's named after uh, likely the Apostle John, the same uh, person who authored the Gospel of John that, that bears his name. Uh, there, there's some, some debate about that, but there is a large consensus that dates back to the early uh, centuries of the church going into the uh, into the early and mid second century, uh, understanding it and recognizing this this epistle, this letter to have been written by one in the same <clears throat> oh, excuse me one in the same as John the Apostle. Uh, most likely, it's written you know somewhere between eighty five a- AD eighty five to ninety five. Uh, it's referenced in early church writings like those of Polycarp and Papias or Papias. I'm never really sure how to say his name when I see it, but uh, Again, uh, fast and confidently. That's yes, yes, that's, that's the key. But I just like to be honest. I like to have some transparency to show people. You know, that's how, some integrity. I appreciate you know, that. show people how humble I am. I'm yeah, really proud of yeah. my humility. <laughs> First John would no doubt commend. But uh, no, to get back to uh, talking about some of the background, uh, Polycarp um, and Ignatius, uh, when they cite um, New Testament writings in the in the, in the second century. Um, this is one of them that, that's, that's typically mentioned. There was some dispute later on about Second and Third John, but First John it was one of the, uh, the undisputed uh, letters. So it, it's been recognized bas- bas- virtually from it, the time it was penned as, as being scripture. Uh, the content of the letter itself, if you if you if you follow the John's thought, uh, you, it's going to seem a bit circular because some phrases, some themes keep uh, coming back uh, in a circular fashion. And so uh, John will begin a certain thought, he'll move on to something else, and then return to that same uh, line of thought or, or the, that theme. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a pattern, there's sort of a threaded set of themes that you find uh, at various portions in the book. That's why when sometimes we quote it, we're trying to think, now where did he say that in First John? It's because he says the same thing similarly in, in, in multiple places. And I think Aaron, we were talking about a little earlier, earlier how you can tell John's an old man at this point because he he gets repetitive, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's got a very uh, grandfather fatherly feel. Like, you know, he's sitting down with the kids. They're they're all talk. He's talking. And he's like, I'm going to tell you a story about when I was when I was a young man, and then it just kind of meanders off into another <laughs> thought, and then he comes back to it and. And it's it's one of those really neat feelings that that is there in Scripture that is that it exists because the authors were humans, right? And right. so you're seeing a little bit of their personalities exactly. coming through. 
Yeah, so. and God wasn't afraid to use them in their humanness, these sort of idiosyncrasies, these quirks. Yeah. You see it come through in their writings. We definitely see Paul's personality come out. Well, here we're getting a little taste of, of John's personality. And a lot of a lot of the same themes that we see in the Gospel of John, light and darkness, uh, focus on in the beginning, the Word made flesh, That that's here in uh, First John. And uh, we see uh, in this letter... Uh, an awareness and a concern for some false teaching that came and into the church, uh, what uh, scholars will typically call docetism, so that, that because the, in Greek thought, a lot of Greek philosophy, they thought that matter was bad, the physical realm, physical material was bad. Uh, so to consider Jesus a divine logos, to take on flesh, would, would have been scandalous. So there was a teaching that had crept into the church that Jesus only appeared to be human, but wasn't actually human because that would have been uh, that would have been beneath uh, that would have been unbecoming of a divine figure to take on a, a, hum, a human nature, something that that is inherently uh, material, like like uh, hum, human nature is. And so you see John counteracting this with the claim that no, uh, Jesus did come in the flesh, and if you deny that he did not come in the flesh, that the Son of God did not come into the flesh, uh, then then this is anti-Christian teaching. That's how John uses that this term anti-Christ uh, in, in his letter in a, co- in a couple of places. And so we we have John counteracting that sort that sort of uh, mindset and tendency uh, that was uh, prevalent and had an effect on the church for a few centuries. Um, here early on at this letter that's likely written at the end of the end of the first century. Uh, and, th- and thankfully here, uh, this has ongoing relevance, not only in terms of the importance of uh, recognizing true doctrine has handed down from the apostles to the, to the church, uh, but also just practical uh, exhortations and instruction uh, concerning uh, not only sound doctrine, but uh, what obedient living looks like, how that's connected to our assurance of our, of our salvation and what consistent obedience is to look like as those who walk in the light and not in the darkness. And we'll, we'll touch on some of that theme that's woven throughout the letter and then the passage that we'll, we're about to read out of First John chapter 2. So here is the passage. Um, again, six verses, so nice and short. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know that that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him, should walk just as he walked. So, first question that we should be asking as we as we dig into this passage is this, which is, what are the these things that John is writing about? And uh, while it might seem obvious, the the reason that we're asking this it actually be, has to do with that circular nature of of the writing of this letter itself. It can become a bit confusing because of that. So um, it could refer to, for example, uh, to the book as a whole, feeding from what preceded in chapter one, 
the the whole uh, discussion of God's people uh, being those who walk in light, but those who walk in darkness not being God's people, and that kind of thing. Um, it could also be referring to the gospel message and its attached meaning. Again, this pulling from from chapter one in verses one to three. You know what was from the beginning, what we have seen and heard, and so forth. Um, and it can also very well be uh, understood as uh, set up for um, for what John is going to unpack throughout the remainder of this this portion here, which is that Christ is our advocate and the implications of that. Um, so when we sin, we ultimately we 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 aren't left without hope, um, but we are to pursue obedience in Christ. Right. Um, so is there anything you want you might want to add to that? No, I would just think our listeners would benefit from just knowing when you see phrases, generic phrases like these things to to not be too grossly concerned or try to parse that out too uh, finely, if we could put it that way, too precisely the way that we talk today and refer to these things and mean it in a general sense, things associated with whatever, whatever subject that we might be talking about. John here is talking about the gospel and its implications for uh, Christians' lives in terms of how they they live, what they believe. Uh, so uh, it would be it would be one of those things not to get too bogged down in and and trying to pinpoint exactly what John had had in mind. You might be thinking about it more than John is. In fact, it is probably almost more of a, more of a catch-all phrase to say these things, just meaning the content of Christian doctrine, roughly. Yeah, and I mean, hopefully, as you as you heard the those those possible exp- explanations, um, you'll be quick to pick up that it's like, oh yeah, I can see all of those things in this, and those all make sense mm-hmm. because it's entirely likely that it means all of those right. things. So, right. uh, probably best to think about it as referring to the 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 book as a whole and the totality of its of its message. Right. Um, right. So, there's another question though. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and we're not trying to uh, start debate or bring controversy into the into the episode. But uh, this is, this passage gets uh, thrown around a lot in some debates about uh, the extent of Christ's death. So one of the questions we could raise in discussing this passage is, what does John mean by talking about Christ dying for the for the whole world? Now we're not going to try to settle the debate bet- between. Uh, two different groups and lots of people on spectrums in, in between in terms of uh, the extent of, of Christ's atonement. That's that's how uh, systematic theology and looking at the entire Bible, looking at all 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 the biblical data that's relevant to discussion and how the church historically has reflected on this question. That's how they how people have tried to answer this question: for whom did Christ die? Who for whom did his atonement count for who 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 does it save and uh who was it meant to save and is it um is it possible that some for whom he died don't receive its benefits those those sort of questions that that we get into often in systematic theology and they can be divisive and and contentious and contentious but for our purposes and trying to understand better first john 2 it's best to understand that this is not talking about this debate. This is in the first century. There weren't disputes about the extent of the atonement that were uh, popping up as as they as they were in later centuries of the church, particularly in the um, in the you know sixteenth seventeenth century. 
and 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 so and so on and so right what we can what we can analyze from and assess from first john 2 is that he he's giving the christians ground for assurance that they can be forgiven of sin if you recall at the end of first john 1 remember they don't have chapter division so this is one flowing uh, stream of thought uh, he is giving the reader the confidence that if we confess our sins that god is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness well What's a further level of confidence to give the believer? Well, he reasons through this at the beginning of chapter 2 that, that if we do sin, because, because we will, because we are sinners by nature, and though we're transformed by Christ, we're not transformed entirely and perfectly. Uh, we are going to sin, but another basis for our assurance that brings us relief and elation is that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as, as John puts it. And why is he? Um, why does he give us confidence? Well, he is our advocate, but he advocates for us based on what he did for us on the cross. His atoning sacrifice that was for our sin, but for the, for not only for ours here in this, you know, likely this. Uh, somewhere around Ephesus is where, where we think that uh, where John's writing from, and he's writing to maybe the church in uh, somewhere in Asia Minor is, is what, what we can piece together. But not just the churches that we know here, but for people all over the world who are, who are going to come to faith in Christ. So he's the one unique sacrifice. So rather than dealing with the extent of the atonement, this, this passage isn't dealing directly with that debate. It's it's more propping up and, and championing the uniqueness of the atonement and the nature of the atonement. That this is the only sufficient atonement available in the world. This is the only, the only atonement, the only atoning sacrifice that can bring about propitiation for sinners who confess their sins. This is the only basis for real assurance. It's Jesus' atoning death and His ongoing intercession for us. And we don't want to look too deeply or try to load that term world with too much meaning and let it let let it do what John's intending it to do it's not so much wanting to articulate that in that in his use use of that word that this means it must refer in every context to every person who ever ever lived uh, this wouldn't really be uh, great grounds for assurance if that's how he how he meant it that Jesus death propitiates the same way for for ever everybody regardless of Whatever the whatever the conditions uh, might be uh, that they that they've heard the gospel and believed it, but no, he's given assurance to believers, those who have believed on on Christ, and so we see this term "world" used differently in, in different portions of, of John's writing. So if you even skip down to verse fifteen of this same uh, chapter, you have "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." So you can see that world even there within the same chapter has a has a different sort of nuance in that verse than it than uh, than what's being uh, what what's how it's being used in First John two uh, two to talk about the the scope of the atonement's uh, impact and and its and its breadth of, of the of the types of people that the that Jesus can save through his death. So anyways, hopefully that wasn't too long, convoluted of an explanation. I was trying not to advocate for a particular view, but more trying to actually temper both sides by not thinking that they have a the proof text that just dismisses all arguments and going here to 1 John 2, 2. Yeah, no, that actually is really, really helpful because um, and really it, it is a good reminder of why we have to be careful with proof texting. Right. 
um, because a surface level read would make it suggest specifically a surface level read in English would make it appear that oh you could use this in a proof text about about this argument and there's and there's tons of other verses that you can do this right, with right. too um, and again people were not talking about that particular debate we're talking about the problem with proof texting to determine debates so please don't email our bosses um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but in that um, that it's like if we're gonna proof text something it's really important that we actually make sure that what it says is what it means or that what we think it means right. is what it actually means um, rather than rather than just taking a quick look and saying, oh, well, it's got this word. Therefore, I'll do this with it. Um, some t- a lot of the time it's fine, but there there are key terms in Scripture that would seem to be innocuous to us that uh, would that we can read plainly and. Uh, if we don't read them thoughtfully and carefully and make sure that we understand what the implications are of that, then uh, we can uh, we can find ourselves in unnecessary conflict at times. So, right. It's um, a good way to put it. Yeah. So uh, the um, so the other uh, the last question that we've got before we start talking about some guidance for for all you disciple makers out there is this question that has to do really with the bulk of the remainder of this passage Um, because we see john talking about how this is how we know um this is how we know that uh that we know him uh that we keep his commandments um in verse three and he continues on through that repeating that throughout the remainder of the passage what is he what does he mean there is he making salvation contingent upon obedience and the answer to that is is no although that is a common mistake not necessarily with reading this passage but certainly in reading the bible we do have to remember that salvation is not based on our obedience it is based on grace through faith only but Obedience is the means by which our faith is made known. So we love God by keeping his commandments. And if someone says that they're a Christian, but they don't do what he says, they're actually not a Christian. That's what John is getting at here. Is, is, um, it's essentially what, um, what we read elsewhere where it says you'll know them by their fruit. Right. What does, so, so think about it this way is that, um, the way we live and the way that the way that others live um, validates and invalidates our profession of faith. And it's not in the one time individual sins that we commit. It's the habitual ongoing patterns of sinful behavior. Um, so um, that ultimately lead to questioning the truthfulness of our confession of faith. Um, the other thing here is because again we're talking this is this is coming out of this reminder of the assurance that we have that when we sin we have an advocate for us with God the Father Christ Jesus the righteous one and that matters to us in this discussion because um because while our salvation which is our justification by faith is not based on obedience, 
our assurance our and specifically our feeling of assurance yeah. of our salvation ebbs and flows according to our obedience and so when we are finding ourselves in this situation where we are um where we are where where we maybe we have gotten caught up in in a period of, of sinful disobedience for a season of time perhaps even a prolonged season of time um, but we feel that conviction about this what uh, what that is a reminder of is is that we can that we can and need to turn to Jesus who is our advocate um, and that takes us actually into uh, into the guidance that, that we have for people because we do need to remind ourselves we need to remind everyone that that, that we uh, that we teach and that we disciple so whether so whether we're we're uh, serving in a kids ministry kids need to know this too right um, and what's great here is is that kids actually can understand this a lot more and grasp this a lot easier than us adults do. Yeah. Because they haven't built up as much baggage. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you just think about how for those who are parents or are around kids on a regular basis, how much they uh, get into trouble, get reprimanded, but then 5 minutes later they're fine and moving moving on because the the discipline problem, the behavior problem has been dealt with and now they and they understand their status is that hey, things are all good. We're in the clear. I'm still loved and belong to, to my family. My parents aren't going to disown me because of my bad behavior. And they give me the commands and these disciplines for my own good, and we're going to move forward with our day, and I'm going to enjoy the gift that is my, my relationship with my family. Or you even think of kids relating to one another. They can be quick to move on yeah. to, to make up and forgive, and then they're back to playing whatever whatever silly games they might be might be into for the day. And so that's a that's a good reminder, Aaron, how sometimes the best illustration of what kingdom life looks like, life lived in the light, is to use John's language here, uh, we can look to children. They're they're sometimes a macrocosm of these greater spiritual realities. Yeah, yeah. Um, another piece of this too is that um, that goes along with this this reality that we do have an advocate that we that. Uh, is there, I mean, we turn to him in repentance and faith in response yeah. to every sin that we have. But we also have to remember, too, that that what kills sin in us and doesn't allow it to fester in our lives is mm-hmm. by bringing it into the light. We have to talk about these things. We can't keep, we can't keep sin covered up. Right. We can't keep it in the darkness because that's just where it festers. But we also have to recognize, too, that inevitably all sin is going to be dragged into the light. And so if there's something that we're doing that we think we can get away with, I, I just got to tell you, it's not going to work. You're not, we're not fooling anybody. Right. And, and especially not God. God knows. God sees, and 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 I say that as someone who who really regularly is is trying to thoughtfully point the finger at himself first. Yeah. Here, um. So so, listeners, hopefully you're not hearing any condemnation toward you in my voice. Um. 
But if there is something that you're hiding, that may be the Holy Spirit telling you, you need to bring it into the light. You need to confess your sin. You need to repent and turn to Jesus in faith and receive the forgiveness that he has for you. Because he is your advocate. If you are his, if you are one of his people, mm-hmm. and he will advocate for you with the Father. Yeah, that, that's a good point in bringing the sin t- to, to light that you were noting, Aaron, that the sin is going to affect you in some way, and eventually it's going to rear its ugly head. Reaping and sowing uh, works itself out when it comes to sin patterns in our in our lives, just as if you had some sort of physical ailment, whether it's an injury or, or sickness, you can't just mask it by pretending like life is fine and going through the motions continually and drawing attention away from it. Eventually, uh, you know, infections spread, uh, pain becomes more crippling depending on what it is, and and, and, uh, and by way of analogy, sin's going to eventually corrode and pervade and, and become, become obvious. We wouldn't want to uh, not go to the doctor because we were scared of what was going to happen. No, that's that's the wise thing to do because we need help treating it. Well, because we have this advocate in Jesus before the Father, we don't need to be scared. We have someone who has the right medicine, and namely that medicine was what he did for us on the cross and then raising from the dead 2,000 years ago. So he has the answer to our sin problem, and it's seeing what he has bought for us and making us adopted children of God who own an eternal inheritance and have God Himself to enjoy forever as their as their treasure, uh, something that can delight us and satisfy, satisfy us infinitely, as opposed to the temporal satisfaction that we might get from whatever sin it is that we might be uh, caught caught in. We, we the the medicine in this instance tastes better. It might be bitter at fir- first, but it's an acquired taste, and it tastes so much better than staying in the in tasting of the of the sin uh, indefinitely. Another uh, point we want to uh, address and what we can take away for, for guidance from this passage is that we need to pursue obedience through the Spirit's power. We don't need to look at this as if we're doing this all by the effort of the flesh, uh, by our own sheer willpower. This isn't a bootstraps uh, idea of sanctification, that we're finding whatever is within us, finding the strength within us, I just show how competent we are just, uh, to establish the validity of our Christianity, the authenticity of our, of our faith. No, this is grace-filled and spirit-empowered spirit obedience that we're, that we're talking about. And it's what John is, is, is talking about. It's talking, he's talking about the life-giving power that we have by being in Christ, by being no longer in the darkness, but, but in the light. We, we have fellowship with him, so we have access to this power that Jesus Christ has brought to the world, a world of sinful human beings like you and me, so that we might be able to obey, so that we can love God and love neighbor, as John uh, outlines and re- says repetitively uh, in, the, in this this letter. So we, we need to understand that these commands are calls not to do things in our own power, but to do it in the power that God gives us through Christ, and that these commandments are, are for our good. They're life-giving. They're how we were created to live as, as image bearers, and we're being restored to that through Christ. And these commands are not only good for us, but they're, they're good for our neighbors. And in the context of First John, they're, they're good namely for our Christian brothers and sisters. Yeah. 
Man, that's a good note for us to end on. So, Josh, thanks for talking about this passage with me today. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.org.